0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about the upcoming talks at each of our services or to listen to other talks, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Morning Blackfriars, how are you? I can hear the ladies munching their chocolates. There's gonna be a mass carbo crash in about 20 minutes time, so I might speak loudly halfway through. Uh, just wanna add my thank you. Uh, to that of uh, David's and the team's for the amazing outpouring of generosity. £315,500, just amazing. And uh, going around a number of the services before the gift day, both the sense of family but also the sense of vision, for living for something beyond ourselves, felt very significant, very special. So I want to say thank you not only for what you gave but also for how you gave. And uh, in many ways, thank you doesn't do you justice. But I have a sermon to preach, so it'll have to do. (laughs) Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, And if it's not too soppy a way to start a sermon, uh, I love you guys very, very much. And just pray for God's Riches, blessing and multiplication of all that is happening here. Okay, we're on week two of a new series of talks all themed around the subject of peace. And There's a slide coming up with a little flavour of some of the topics we're going to be covering. Peace for our minds, that'll be a big one. Peace and reconciliation, peace for our communities, peace between the genders, peace for the environment. Uh, And today we're going to be looking at peace for the future, which I guess often goes by another name, that of hope. How can we have genuine lasting hope rather than anxiety for the future? And I want to start by reading a few verses from 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. If you have a Bible, I would love you to turn there. And we're going to begin to read at chapter 4 and verse 13. And uh, words are on the screen. This is what it says. It is written, I believe, therefore, I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so the grace that's reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. Okay, how can we have hope for the future. I want to start with a bit of context to talk about the city, Corinth, to which Paul was writing. Uh, Corinth was located in a very strategic place. A couple of maps coming up on the screen behind me. A uh, narrow strip of land, uh, one of those hubs in the south leads to the whole of Asia, the one in the north leads to Italy and the rest of Europe. And so if you are going to be involved in any kind of trade in the ancient world, you're going to want to end up going through here. And so Corinth became a very wealthy, very lucrative place. It was designed by some of Rome's best city planners. The very best water distribution system in the ancient world was in Corinth. And of course, water is a very big deal in the Mediterranean. But it led to this kind of belief that through human ingenuity, they could solve pretty much any problem in the world. One of the first ever travel guides in all of history, written by kind of like the Michael Palin of the ancient world, features Corinth heavily because it was seen as such a special and magical place. Uh, One of the things this writer talks about is the myth that Corinth itself had divine origins, that the founder, Corinthus, was a son of Zeus himself. This writer says, kind of in brackets, the only people who seriously believe this are the Corinthians themselves. In other words, the Corinthians were very proud of where they lived, but they were also a little bit superior as well. Have you ever met a Londoner like that? Uh. I live in Sutton, I meet them a lot. You know, the kind of person, hey, Andy, where do you live? I live in Sutton. And this Londoner says, oh, oh, that's nice, that's nice, yeah? And of course, what they don't mean is, that's nice. What they mean deep down is, oh, you poor Philistine. How do you cope without electricity and running water, you know? Remind me, how long does it take you to get to work by horse and cart, you know? You ever met a Londoner like that, yeah? Yeah. Some of you are Londoners like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was Corinth. Very proud, very superior place. In fact, the word boasting is used 55 times in the whole of the New Testament, 39 of those times in Paul's writing to the Corinthians. This is like ground zero for boasting in the ancient world. Uh, it was seen as a center of kind of technology and innovation. It was like the hub of the empire. So much so that when the kind of kingdom of Greece, of which Corinth was a part, became part of the Roman Empire, Corinth became the new capital of Greece. Athens was the past. Corinth was the future. It was a very competitive place. Famous Isthmian games uh, were held there in the Temple of Poseidon. Very cutthroat culture. There's a very famous ancient proverb that said, not for every man is the journey to Corinth. In other words, this is a city for the best of the best. Only the tough are going to survive here. It was a city with kind of very open attitude to partying and drunkenness and loose morals. The verb Corinthiazomai was well known in the ancient world as to what it really meant to live like a Corinthian. In fact, one Greek writer says whenever a Corinthian was depicted in the theater, they were always shown as being drunk. This was a culture that had bowed the knee to money, power, and pleasure. Now, why is this significant? Because we're talking about peace for the future, about hope. Here's the reason. It is because there are secular views of hope which do not work. Uh, There's a professor at Columbia University in the United States called Andrew Delbanco. One of the things he's written, particularly of the US actually, but more broadly I'd apply it to the Western world, is that in many ways we have replaced hope in God with hope in progress or in our nation or hope in ourselves. This was Corinth. If they had hope in anything at all, it was being at the cutting edge of this ever-expanding empire under Caesar's rule and reign, or hope, secondly, in themselves, in mastering the self, in becoming the best of the best in this uber-competitive culture. And of course, 2,000 years later, there are modern-day approaches to this kind of hope. I'm sure many of you have read blogs or articles or books. There's a well-known one by Steven Pinker. But talk about how the world is getting better on almost every major issue. There's a few graphs coming up on the screen behind me. Let me just list a few of them. Poverty, health, education, literacy, child labor, life expectancy, I mean, just to name a few, the world is getting better and better and better on every major issue. This is, of course, amazing news. But so the argument goes, well, therefore, we can have hope for the future. Kind of makes sense. Or secondly, we end up personalizing this positive upward trajectory. Uh, I'm always struck by if there's ever a model of hope in the public sphere like a celebrity, there's always a very similar narrative around their life. Here's how it goes. Here is somebody who faced a really difficult challenge, and they overcame it to succeed in life. And therefore, if they overcame that challenge to succeed, maybe we can too. They're a model of hope. We can take hope from their example. This kind of secular optimism, this kind of secular view of hope is fundamentally flawed. It does not work. And I want to give you three reasons why. First reason is this, is whenever this kind of hope is talked about, it's always framed in economic terms. That hope is based on wealth and success. Now, there is nothing wrong with either of those things. Those are great things to have. But I guess we can all bring to mind wealthy and successful people whose lives are a bit of a mess. Is that what we're hoping for? Second reason this view of hope doesn't work is it leaves very little room for suffering and sacrifice in the here and now kind of like a silly example, but I guess most people in this room know someone who is suffering right now. Maybe you are suffering yourself. One of the worst things you can say to a suffering person is, hey, the world's getting better. Why are you so down? Or hey, this person overcame that challenge. Why can't you? It's just going to make things worse rather than better. More than that, if the whole point of history is prosperity and success, why, oh, why should I deal with suffering and sacrifice in the here and now? That's the point of life. Incidentally, most people who propose this view of hope are usually wealthy, educated, and successful, often white and male as well, I hasten to add, with very little understanding of what it is to suffer in the here and now. And the third reason this view of hope doesn't work, rather bleak start to a sermon, is death. It is death. You see, even if I do succeed, even in a culture as competitive as Corinth, how can I have hope in the face of death? Death is like the ultimate thief of hope and peace, and life and joy and love and relationships and everything in life that has meaning. In fact, in Corinthians, Paul describes death as the ultimate enemy. How can I have hope in the face of death? Secular optimism is kind of secular view of hope. It does not work. So given that, like, how can we have genuine hope? What is the Christian hope? I want to suggest four very simple steps. From these verses in Corinthians. And we're going to have to skim some of the passage because uh, of time, and I apologize for that, but I hope uh, the simplicity of these steps can help us find lasting hope. And the first step to genuine Christian hope is this, we groan. We groan. Uh, this might seem like a really curious place to start, but the Christian view of hope begins with this humble acknowledgement that the world is not as I want it to be, and I cannot fix it in my own strength. And the word that Paul uses, not just here actually, in Corinthians, but elsewhere, is we groan. Ah, oh, the world isn't as I want it to be, but I can't fix it myself. If I had to come up with an image of what kind of groaning looks like, it would be uh, this next one coming up on the screen. This is Gareth Southgate's penalty miss for England in the European Championships in 1996. Uh, hands up if you remember this moment. Yeah, we carry the scars. Uh, this was the year that the whole of England was singing It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming. (laughs) Wow. Jesus loves you, but that was rubbish. (laughs) Yeah, football's coming home, and 23 years later, football hasn't come home. And I remember the commentary of this moment vividly. Jonathan Pearce said this, Gareth Southgate, all of England is with you. And 15 seconds later, no one in England was with Gareth Southgate anymore. (laughs) He was all on his side. And it's almost like in this moment, you heard a whole nation just go, oh, because this is not how I want the world to be, but I can't fix it in my own strength. And every single person in this room knows what it is to groan. If you've got a relationship that you love, that doesn't work out the way you want, we go, oh. We've got a job that I apply for that I really want and I don't get it. I go, oh. If you hear it's me coming to preach in church on Sunday, you go, yeah, that's where the hope comes in. <laughs> oh, that was so much louder than the South. This is going to be the podcast that gets played. Yeah. <laughs> now, here's why this is significant. Nobody in Corinth encouraged groaning. Groaning in Corinth in this self-sufficient culture was like admission of defeat, that, oh, you can't survive in this city that's for the best of the best. Let me give you a few quotes on this. Epictetus, the great Stoic, said, no good man ever groans, Cicero is a disgrace to groan. Groaning must be resisted. Plutarch, the philosopher, groaning is a sign of weakness. Nobody in Corinth encouraged groaning, except for a guy called Paul, who described followers of Jesus as groaners. These people who admit, oh, my life, the world, is not as I want it to be, but I cannot fix it in my own strength. A bit of bonus teaching for you here. One of the ways they described those who could overcome in their own strength in the ancient world was, they're a conqueror. I've mastered myself. I've overcome in my own strength. I'm a conqueror. One of the most famous verses in the whole of the New Testament, Romans 8, Paul says, followers of Jesus, no, 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 no. We are more than conquerors. We don't find hope through self-sufficiency. We need to look to someone greater. A number of years ago, my wife Joy worked for the international relief agency Fund. And they begin every day with a time of prayer. And one morning, she said, the leader came in and read of a situation in our world that's just utterly horrific. And then this leader said this, for the next 45 minutes, we are going to weep and grieve about this situation before God. The room grew awkwardly quiet and uncomfortable. And somebody in one corner fell to their knees in prayer. Somebody else began to weep. And slowly, she says, It became one of the most powerful prayer meetings she's ever been in in her life. Just an opportunity to groan. And and, and given over half the psalms, the psalms of lament, maybe we don't do this enough ourselves. The Christian journey to hope begins on our knees. With this humble recognition, oh, the world isn't as I want it to be, but I can't fix it through my own energy and strength. We groan. Second step to hope is we receive the Spirit wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, what is it exactly that we're hoping for? You see, probably probably most lives in this room are kind of automatically oriented to prosperity. I get the grades, to get the job, to get the salary, to get the mortgage, to get the lifestyle, and and then what? I mean, is that it? Is that what we're hoping for? Paul would say no. Like More than anything else, what we long for and groan for is relationships. It is connection with the God who created us. In fact, I'm struck even in these few verses how often Paul describes what he is longing and groaning for in relational terms. Oh, I want to be home. I want to be in my heavenly dwelling. I want to be with the Lord. It is for this that we groan more than anything else. In the 18th century, there was a rather hardcore preacher called Jonathan Edwards. A very well known. One of his most famous sermons was called Heaven is a World of Love. In it, he writes this, At the center of heaven isn't merely a generic God, but the triune Christian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual love, connected by mutual holy energy, infinite and unchangeable love. In other words, at the center of heaven, at the center of our hope, is just this amazing acceptance and security and unconditional love, and it is for this that we groan. This is our great longing. And as we long for this moment, Paul writes that God gives us his spirit, both as a taste of what's to come, but also as a promise, a deposit, a guarantee. In fact, the the Greek word here, not that I'm I'm a big quoter of Greek words, as you who regularly will know, but the Greek word is arhabon. And in modern-day Greek, this means engagement ring. I give someone an engagement ring as a sign of my love and commitment, but also with a promise that a day is going to come of greater intimacy and connection than we have right now. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit to us. I remember a number of years ago, uh, David and I were hosting uh, a couple of days for uh, a number of leaders. And uh, one evening, uh, I kind of just introduced the evening, and, and David was doing some training on how to help others connect with the presence and power of God. And at the end of the training, he said, would anybody like to be a volunteer? Somebody who kind of comes and receives prayer so we can model it for everybody else. And this girl put up her hand and kind of went to the front of all these leaders and got in her kind of receiving from God position. And then David said, and now Andy is going to come to the front and show us what to do next. Well, I I looked around the room for for somebody else called Andy, and there was no one else there. This was not part of my plan for my life. And uh, if you ever hang around David, uh, he does do things like this from time to time. Uh, which is why he's now going to come up and finish the sermon. Um, uh, no, no, no. That'll get us groaning. <laughs> um, um, so I come, I come to the front, and like, just to be honest, I've been waiting about five years for that line. Um, and I, I got nothing. I'm just empty. And I'm like, God, have you got anything? And uh, I feel like maybe the Holy Spirit gives me a nudge. Just tell this girl she can let the stress out. I was like, is that it? Just tell this girl she can let the stress out. I'm like, inside, because I have to look cool for leaders on the outside. Like, inside, I'm like, God, like, I don't want to point this out, but these are leaders here. Like, these are leaders. They are leaders. Like, can you give me like, a great insight into Nehemiah or Jeremiah? Like A little-known verse from Revelation. Like something that makes these people go, ooh, I didn't know that. Just tell her she can let the stress out. I was like, okay, God, one more pushback. Like, I just want to point out the irony of this moment, that your lack of detail means I now have stress, I need to get out, okay? Like, okay, you're creating a pastoral issue here. Can you help? Just, just tell her she can let the stress out. I got nothing else. So I stand next to this girl. I just put a little hand on her shoulder, because the Bible talks about the laying on her hands. It's just a kind of picture of how God uses us through whom to communicate his power and presence. And with every eye in the room upon me, I just say, You can let the stress out. And it's difficult to describe what happened in that moment other than in kind of picture terms. It was like we suddenly stood under a waterfall of the power and presence of God. And this girl, I don't know, she just starts kind of bending over and wailing deep sobs like kind of the deepest burdens in her soul are being laid bare before God. The tears are rolling down her face. And bless her, she stands crying in front of all of these leaders. (laughs) On on the inside, I'm like, yes, yes, no, 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 no. (laughs) Um, Well, maybe a bit. (laughs) Um, Actually, I I share that story because of its ordinariness. Like, I didn't share any clever insight. There was no music in the background. I just had to ask. And he is the God who meets us in our groaning. He is the God who helps us get the stress out. Sometimes the Spirit gives us a peace that passes understanding like my understanding says I should be stressed by this, this situation, I get a peace that passes that. Sometimes I get like intoxicating moments of joy in terms of prayer and worship. Corinthians talks about being inwardly renewed every day. It's the work of the Spirit. But just to be clear, it's not always an emotion. I think it often is because we're emotional beings and relationships are emotional things. But I remember one story. This was from the church that David and Philip were leading before Christchurch, of which I was a part. And it was the end of church one Sunday and we just sang the, the kind of final song, and this guy called Chris, who I didn't know very well, hadn't seen him at the front before, I don't think, suddenly walks to the front and grabs the microphone. And I'm like, rogue man at the microphone <laughs> at the front. And he says, um, God, God's told me uh, there's someone in this room with an addiction to smoking, and uh, God wants to set you free now. If that's anyone, come to the front now, and I'll pray for you. And uh, I'm not sure if you remember this, but like, we're all in the room thinking, this is church. like No one is going to admit to this. And we're all standing at the end of church trying to look like prayerful and holy but we've all got one eye open thinking, <laughs> who, who is this? Um, it's like the end of an episode of Hercule Poirot. You're like, I'm not, I'm not the killer. It's them. It's them. It's not me. And, and like no one goes forward. And the room grows quieter and quieter, and Chris at the front grows redder and redder. And in the end, he says, well, if that's anyone, I pray you'll set free in Jesus' name uh, or find me at the end for prayer. And he kind of does the, the walk of shame off <laughs> back to his seat. And the, the meeting ends, and we're all kind of clearing up thinking, oh, poor Chris. <laughs> he won't do that again. Well, what we didn't know was there was a lady who'd come to church that Sunday for the first time who was not a follower of Jesus. And in the moment, she felt nothing. So she thought, well, I'm not sure I'm going to get prayer for that. Following morning, she wakes up, walks to the newsagents to buy her daily packet of cigarettes, gets to the checkout and suddenly realizes all her cravings for nicotine have completely gone. She remembers Chris's prayer. She thinks Jesus must be real, gives her life to him, and is back in church the following Sunday. Isn't that an amazing story? This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. had the most wonderful text from Lars yesterday. It was the Alpha Holy Spirit Day. Four people experienced the presence and power of God and decided, I want to follow Jesus. Four new Christians. Isn't that amazing? Yes. This is the work of the Spirit. But here's what gets me excited. If this is just the deposit, if this is just the foretaste, what's it going to be like when we're with him face to face? If this is just the engagement ring, what's the wedding day going to be like? And Paul writes, we experience the Spirit now, and therefore we can have confidence for what is to come. Oh, we bring to God our groaning, but there, in our groaning, God meets us by his Spirit. Step three to lasting hope is we think. We think. And this is where our responsibility really kicks in. not sure if you've seen the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, In many ways, it's a story about hope. Uh, The last words of this movie are, I hope. And that's the closing scene. Reconciliation between two old friends. I love that when applied to the Christian story. And the two lead characters, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, have an ongoing debate about hope through the movie. Morgan Freeman's like, the world is too painful. I'm not going to hope because I'll just get hurt and disappointed. Tim Robbins, he's having none of it. He's like, whatever happens out there, they can't get up here in my mind. They can't steal what's happening up here, and therefore I will always have hope. That's not far off the biblical approach to hope. We'll come back to this in a moment, but Paul again and again talks about fixing our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Like remembering this again and again and again. Uh, A bit more background to Corinth for a moment. By legend, the first ever king of Corinth was a guy called Sisyphus. Uh, He was a very wealthy, very arrogant man. He'd have fitted well in the culture. And he came up with a plan to outsmart even death so he could live his whole life forevermore in comfort, luxury, and self-indulgence. But death eventually came for him. Death caught up with him. And to make sure he would never escape death ever again, they sentenced him to a task. You may remember this part of the story, to push a huge boulder up to the top of a hill with tremendous effort. And just as he'd get to the summit, the boulder would slip from his grasp, tumble to the bottom, and he'd have to do it again and again and again through all of eternity. And this story, it kind of captivated writers and artists through all of history, the first king of Corinth. in fact, One philosopher, Albert Camus, wrote The Myth of Sisyphus, where basically he said this, is this what life is like? All our efforts, Monday morning, again tomorrow. Do we go through the same old story? Is this it? You see, just under the surface of this really successful culture, culture for the best of the best, was this fragility and vulnerability. I might be wealthy and successful, but is this it? And I just humbly suggest, I think maybe the same fragility is under the surface of our wealthy, prosperous culture too. But one of the reasons I think this is because of the cultural icons that we produce. Uh, Cultural icons are things like music and art and literature that kind of speak of what a society thinks about the world in which we live. And when it comes to the future, I just think it's really interesting. Just just one example. A number of commentators have talked about the explosion of apocalyptic movies over the last 15 years. Some of them are coming up on the screen uh, behind me. There are now over 250 of these. Uh, Notice it's pretty much the same color palette in all of them. Darkness, grayness, griminess. In mean, pretty much every one, it's like the environment's being destroyed, war is on the increase, and anything of hope has basically been exterminated. Like Is this what secretly, we think about the world in which we live, that for all our efforts, this is what it leads to? A couple of years ago, there was an article in The New York Times, which asked which subjects are underrepresented? In contemporary fiction, one author, Ayana Mathis, said this, Today, writers seem to have decided despair, alienation, and bleakness are the most meaningful and interesting descriptors of the human condition. In our ennui and end of days malaise, we are suspicious of the fullness of life. Is this what we're filling our minds with? It's almost like our culture is pushing hopelessness upon us. Paul says this, in the midst of this, whatever you see with your eyes, remember a better story of which you are a part. And the cornerstone of this story, what Paul devotes paragraphs to in Corinthians more than anything else in this regard is the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, if the greatest enemy of all, death itself has been defeated, and if Jesus is alive and with us now, then whatever I am facing, even if it's death itself, the one who is with me and in me is stronger and greater, and therefore I have hope. This is our hope. Jesus is a lie. But here's the deal, and we'll come back again and again through this series to this. We have to fight for it up here. I came across a really cute story. It's in America about a 10-year-old boy called Willie Myrick. A picture of him coming up on the, on the screen behind me. Uh, this was in Atlanta in Georgia. And uh, Willie was playing outside the front of his house, and a stranger approached him and beckoned him away from his home, snatched him from the street, strapped him in the back of a car, locked the doors, and drove away. Willie Myrick has been kidnapped. And he's being driven away from everything he knows and loves. What does this 10-year-old boy do? Uh, He starts singing the famous gospel song by Hezekiah Walker, Every Praise is to Our God. Hands up if you know know this song. Every praise is to our God. I love this song. I love this song. Uh, Rich, our worship leader, hates it and has vetoed it in Christchurch. uh, Because uh, he's... uh, (laughs) He's further from God than I am, uh, as you can see. <laughs> and Willie Myrick starts singing, "Every praise is to our God." Fifteen minutes later, he's still going, "Every praise is to God." Half an hour later, "Every praise, every praise." Forty-five minutes is to our God. One hour later, non-stop, "Every praise is to our God." One and a half hours later. Every praise is to our God. Two hours later, not every praise is to our, two and a half hours later. Every praise is to our God. Three hours later, every praise. Eventually the kidnapper goes, I can't take this anymore! Stops the car, unlocks it, orders Willie Myrick to get out, drives away. Willie Myrick is found by a stranger, reunited with his family, and this is why we must sing this song in church. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, um, <laughs> hope you're taking notes, Rich. <laughs> that was for you. Anyway, like, he, here's the point of this story. It's like our culture right now is one big fat joy and peace burglar. Like, just believe doom and anxiety for the future. What's our response? Every praise is to our God. Jesus is alive. We read it to ourselves. We preach it to ourselves. We sing it to ourselves. We study it. We read it some more. We preach it to ourselves. We read it some more until the joy and peace burglars up here go, I can't take this anymore and leave. And what's left is hope and peace. This is the responsibility we have. God meets us by his spirit, but we have to remember, no, what I face right now, Jesus is risen. There've been a couple of seasons in my life where I just feel I've been particularly dark. Uh, gr- grief, loneliness, a bit of despair. Uh, one of the reasons I've kind of stumbled through those seasons with God's help is I've kind of had to wake up in the morning and say, like, whatever happens today, I am making a decision to remember that Jesus is alive and with me right now. It's almost like hope, peace for the future, is a decision before it is an emotion. I'm going to fight for this today. For those of you that are in the midst of groaning right now, do not forget the story that you are a part of when you follow Jesus. Are oh, we groan, we receive the Spirit, but then we think up here. And then the final step to hope is this. We speak. We speak. I'm just uh, reminded of the story of Joshua in the Old Testament. God says to him, I'm going to give you two things, my presence and my promises, now, with these two things, go into the promised land, establish the nation of Israel, overcome challenges, fight battles, and through doing that with my presence and promises, one day through you, the whole earth is going to be blessed. Well, of course, that's the coming of Jesus in due course. Well, our commission is not so different. We get the presence of God, and we get the promises of God, but now we are to go into a hope-starved world and to be bringers of hope. And in doing so, we'll come to this in a moment, we find but one of the most haunting pieces of cinema for me came at the end of the movie Titanic. Uh, the ship's sinking. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet are in the water with hundreds of others perishing. And the camera pans to the rich dudes in the lifeboats who are going to be saved. They have a future. And all you hear when you see them is the cries of the perishing. Help! Help! That moment kind of just... ah. Uh. And of course, we know from history, only two lifeboats go back. The church is to be the lifeboat that goes back. You know, So often when we're faced with hopelessness, the temptation is to hide. When 9-11 happened in 2001, you can see it in the stats, property prices in Cornwall exploded. Why? People thought the answer to hopelessness is retreat, not for the church. We'd be the lifeboat that goes back. I was reminded of this when I was re-watching back the talks from the Everything Conference uh, last November. If you weren't there, I know many of you couldn't make it. Uh, It was excellent, everythingconference.org, all the talks are there. Michael Ramsden, uh, the keynote speaker, talks about Corinth, Acts 18. And Paul goes there, and basically there's a charge levied against him, uh, led by the synagogue ruler Sosthenes in Corinth trying to shut this missionary movement down. And Paul is released. He escapes. Doesn't go how the Jewish people want. So Sosthenes, the enemy of the church, is hauled out into the public square and publicly beaten. Here's why this is significant. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this, this letter is from Paul, called to be an apostle by the will of God. And who else? Our brother Sosthenes. Something has happened to turn this enemy of the church into a disciple of Jesus in Corinth, so well known that the letter to the Corinthians is from him too. How on earth has this happened? Well, given he's Paul's mate, most likely Paul comes to this broken guy, reaches out a hand, helps him to his feet, says, come home with me. And he feeds him, and he bathes him, and he clothes him, and says, I want to tell you about a better story. This is our call. I remember a few years ago, uh, I was preaching actually here at the mermaid and at the end of church uh, one sunday uh, a girl came up to me it was her first sunday in church uh, not a follower of jesus and she was mad which was not the emotional reaction i was going for in my sermon and she grabbed me around about here and she said how dare you talk about a god of love like you have no idea of the suffering in my life right now how dare you talk about a god of love why would a loving god allow this suffering in my life right now and i stood around about here and i was like help help. And you lot did nothing. (laughs) So I was like, let's buy myself some time. I said, let's grab a coffee. And so me and her and a friend uh, met for for coffee uh, a few days later. And I had my answers ready. I mean, there are some compelling answers. Why would a loving God allow suffering? And as I sat down opposite her in Starbucks, I just had this duh moment. That's not the question she wants answering. And I said, just tell me about your life right now. And she told me a story of unquestioned pain. And the future was looking pretty tough indeed. And it was one of the few moments in my life where I said just the right thing at just the right time. It doesn't happen often. She finished this by saying, why would your loving God allow suffering? I said, look, we can talk about that in a moment. But first of all, what you're going through right now is, is really painful. How can I help? how can I serve you? Like how can the community of which I'm a part make your life easier? What do you need? How can we let you know that you're loved? Like, Whatever you think about faith, just forget that. Like how can we love you in the midst of this? She was not expecting that. And all oh, the tears, they began to come. Yes. You know, to this date, that was several years ago, we've never had the God and suffering conversation. We never got onto that. A short while after that, we got to sit in a different coffee shop in London. And I got to help her pray her first ever prayer to Jesus. She was like, oh, I can't do this in my own strength. Jesus, I want to follow you. What had happened? I'd found a Sosthenes. I'd found a Sisyphus. And somehow getting close up, I was reminded as I watched Jesus change her life, oh, the hope I have in Jesus. I found hope through her. Through being the lifeboat that goes back. It's kind of what Paul says here in Corinthians. He says, hey, hey, if we really believe about this, we've got to speak about it. I believe, therefore I speak. That's 2 Corinthians 4.13. And then he goes on to say this, as we do this, the grace of God reaches more and more people. And as that happens, it causes more thanksgiving to overflow for what lies in store for us in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it more obviously in Philemon verse six where he says this, I pray you would be active in sharing your faith. Why? That you may have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. It seems to be the case that if I want to find true lasting hope, I do so by being one of the lifeboats that goes back. This is our call. How do we find hope? Oh, it starts on our knees. Oh, we groan. God meets us by his spirit. We remember the story. He's alive. Every praise is to our God. But then with the lifeboats that go back, we speak and we find more hope there too. Maybe the band want to come up. Why don't we all stand to our feet? Just before we sing a a closing song speaks of the hope we have in Jesus, I just want to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to come. He is the God who meets us in our groaning. Maybe in what you are facing right now, you need to know the love of Jesus. You need to help him let you get the stress out. Maybe you need peace or joy or freedom from a habit you cannot break. Maybe you need a fresh sense of call. I feel like as I invite the presence of the Spirit now, for some of you, particular individuals are going to come to mind. A Sosthenes or a Sisyphus in your world. Someone who's, who's going through life, pushing a boulder uphill, thinking, is this it? I wonder if the Spirit might speak through those moments. So, If you're up for it, why don't you get in your receiving from God position? Let just be open to him. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence now. We come to you with open hearts, deeply imperfect lives. And we lay the needs of our lives, our families, our communities, this city and nation before you now. Oh. Oh. Come meet us, Holy Spirit, in the midst of this. Give us a taste of the unconditional, unfailing love that awaits us one day in all its fullness and glory. May the peace of God come. Speak in this moment about what you have called us to do about what you have made us to be. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. We wait for you in this moment. May the resurrection power of Christ Refresh and strengthen. More of your presence, Lord. And as we worship now, I want to ask that you would increase the activity of your spirit amongst us. Give us joy in your presence. Hope not anxiety for what is to come. And may these words be an expression of our utter and complete confidence in you. May we sing it until we mean it. We love you, Lord Jesus. Because you first loved us, we ask for more of your presence in our lives and in this church for the glory of your name. Amen.